Good morning again. We're in Habakkuk 2, if you have not been with us. If you turn there, a friend asked me what I was, um, what I was doing this week, and I told him I was working on my sermon. He said, oh, what passage? I said, oh, Habakkuk 2, 6 through, through 14. So it's a famous passage. I'm sure you've heard lots of sermons over it. You know, and I, you know, I was pretty serious with him, and so he's, he started racking his brain. Oh, oh, the fig tree. The fig tree won't wither. No, 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 that was, that was Habakkuk 3. You know, Habakkuk 2, 6. Uh, oh, the just will live by faith. No, that's verse 4. You don't know 6 through 14? Unbelievable. Um, he finally figured out I was kidding with him. If you... Uh, if you've heard, um, if you had a nickel for every time you've probably heard this preached, especially 6 through 13, you probably are leaving here with a nickel this morning. <laughs> but it's, uh, it really is one of the hardest passages I think I've ever had to preach, um, which is, um, but all scriptures God breathed, and may God bless um, the word this morning. Let me give you a little context before we dive into reading the passage. Um, here's where we are. Um, have you, ever, have you ever overheard a conversation where somebody's venting? You know what I mean? Like somebody's just getting it all out. They're frustrated. They feel overwhelmed with life. They don't know why certain things are happening in their lives. Habakkuk here has been venting to God. He, um, and he invites us to listen into it. The first few verses are like, God, where are you? Your people are acting horribly. They are... They're so bad, they're, they're, they're bringing pagan worship into the temple, they're defiling it, there's all kinds of injustice, why are you going to allow this? And then God responds, he says, oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to deal with this, I'm going to, I'm going to judge them. And you know, back he's like, alright, you know, but then he's like, through the Babylonians, um, I'm going to re- raise them up to bring them in, and, and Habakkuk's like, hold up, <laughs> uh, that's not really what I was thinking about God. The Babylonians are, they're worse, they're violent and ruthless murderers. How could you be just and fair, a fair God, and, and, and bring in them to judge your people? So we started looking at God's response to Habakkuk last week in verses 2 through 5. We'll continue today, and in summary, let me just let you know where we're going. He says this, God says, Habakkuk, things aren't, what they, things aren't always what they seem to be. Things aren't always what they seem. My people must live by faith in this reality. And hopefully this strikes a chord with all of us who either feel overwhelmed with life or have circumstances in their life or really hard you feel like you want to vent or you have been venting to God. How can you allow this? Let's let God's word speak to us this morning. Start with verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. 
to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's let's pray together. God, thank you that this is your inspired word. And it is so useful, every passage, for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training us in righteousness and building us up in the gospel. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you be with us during this time and do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Things aren't always what they seem, right? I'm sure we all have examples of this in our lives. And I'm going to give you uh, one of mine. I was a visited friend in Nashville, and we both loved to play basketball, and he had a church league going on. And so I, I, I um, put on my basketball shoes and joined him for this, this pickup game. And it's a fairly competitive game. We show up, and uh, a bunch of guys are there. We divide up teams. But just so happened on the opposite team, there was a... Um, about a five foot two, five foot three, forty uh, year old woman at the time. This was about seven, eight years ago. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's a church league. I'm just, telling, I'm, I'm admitting my heart here. <laughs> this is, I didn't say this out loud, but and it's not good. But I was like, okay, you know, compassionate, letting everybody play. That's great, you know. Um, so we start the game, and I end up guarding her. Well, it just so happened that. Um, that this woman played for the, the w, in the WNBA. And to say the least, I, I mean, she just schooled me. Like, it was not even a contest. She just kept shooting threes and darting around me, and it was quite embarrassing. Um, but, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's what you might call an ironic reversal, right? A short... Uh, um, 40-year-old woman turns out to just dominate these younger, tall men in basketball. The Bible is filled with such ironic reversals, where things just don't turn out as one would seem or to think they would turn out. You might think of Uzziah uh, in, in Second Chronicles. He, he was a good king, but then he became proud in his heart, and all of a sudden uh, he thought he would go into the temple and, and uh, take on the role of a priest and cleanse uh, so he could do the work of cleansing. And, and God, because of that, made him have leprosy, whereby he was defiled and expelled from the temple from, for the rest of his life. You might think of, of Haman, right? The, um, the Persian official that wanted to kill the Jews. And it seemed like his plan was going to work out. And then all of a sudden, God raises up an, kind of an insignificant Jew to become queen in a powerful position. And the same gallows that that Haman built to hang the Mordecai the Jew, he was hung on. You might think of a recent one, um, and I don't know how completely accurate this is, but it said that Richard Nixon actually recorded, um, he installed those recording devices in the White House because he wanted to be remembered. He wanted his presidency to be, to be great. 
and the same recording devices he installed for that. There's an ironic reversal, right? Um, they, they gave proof, actually, to his wrongdoing and led to him being, to leaving the office. So when Habakkuk asked God, how could you use this sinful nation that's more wicked than Israel to, to, to judge your people, God replies, look, you have to live by faith. Things aren't always as they, they seem. There will be an ironic reversal. This passage describes what God is up to. And basically what he says is the unchecked unrighteousness, the wickedness of Babylon, it will be judged and brought low and punished. And the seemingly obscured, hidden glory of God, it will be exalted and, and fill the earth. And these truths given to Habakkuk then apply to us now in efforts to live by faith. And so let's apply them with just two simple points. Same thing he told them. All sin, sin will be judged and brought low. And those who give themselves to it. And God's glory and those who hope in it will be established on the earth. So first, God, sin will be judged. So God has given a preview here in these verses. And what, what the upcoming years are going to look like for Israel. He says Babylon is, is seeing, they're, yeah, they're going to be sinning and wick, there's going to be wickedness and violence. And it seems like everything is going to be go, going great for them. Verse 7 and 8 say, says that they will, they will plunder everything not theirs and they'll murder innocent people. And what actually happened is their insatiable greed led to one of the wealthiest nations that ever existed. Their king, Nebuchadnezzar, built a palace that, that was named one of the, the wonders of the world at the time. He built it with plundered wood and stolen gold. Verse 9 through 11 speak of his pride. He built his nest on high and he actually built a, a palace uh, with walls that were 136 feet wide. You'd drive a couple of cars on top of them uh, at one time. He thought it would be the safest place on earth. And then Habakkuk is right to question. Have you ever had Habakkuk's question? Why do, why do bad people seem to sometimes succeed? A guy at girl or girl at school is cheating on a test and and uh, they just seem to make better grades, and they're getting away with it. The, the, the guy with a competitive business seems to be succeeding more than you, even though he, he seems to uh, be uh, doing uh, questionable practices. The, um, the person giving themselves to, to immora- immorality in all kinds of ways. See, they seem to be happy or wealthy, um, Seems like things are going well for the unrighteous. This was the song of Asaph in Psalm 73, if you remember. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The whole psalm fleshes out this question. Why does God allow sometimes sin to to prevail? Well, verse 6, God says, listen, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you and all of my people a, a song to sing. He calls it a taunt song. It's a song that they may live by faith. And the summary of the song may be, even the title may be this. Things are not what they seem to be. They're not always what they seem to be. Each of the five verses begin with woe to him. A woe was a declaration of wrong, a notice of impending judgment. 
Basically like starting the verse in, how terrible it's going to be for you. Saying over and over, sin will be judged. It's a universal truth for all time that there will be an ironic reversal of what we think about sin. And let me give you just three ways that, that we might see, even with sin in our own lives, that there's an ironic reversal. So we can kind of get what this passage is doing. Number one, sin will reap ruin in your life. Sin will reap ruin in your life. In verse 7 and 8, he says, look, they've plundered, but those who they've plundered will rise up and plunder them. The Babylonians will actually become the spoil. That actually happened when the Persians came through. But it's a basic truth in life that we could remember. He says, you're... We, you will often reap what you sow. Psalm 7 illustrates this with a wicked man digging a pit. He digs a pit in his wickedness, whatever that wickedness is, and then he just kind of walks right into it, falls down. The Psalm, uh, Proverbs 22 says, He who sows injustice will reap calamity. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. If you sow to your flesh talking about your sinful nature, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life, he says. And it makes sense in real life, doesn't it? You ever felt like you felt, uh, you felt envy come in, you felt jealous of what somebody else has, or maybe, you know, greed, like you don't have enough. And you allow it to remain unchecked, and next thing you know, you feel dominated by um, discontentment. An insatiable hunger for more starts to take over. You can't control the weeds of discontentment in your life. Or maybe you sow to anxiety and fear. You just let it run wild, maybe because of lack of health or something you don't have, lack of success or popularity. Next thing you know, you feel overrun with it. You feel like you've walked into a pit. You feel a snare. And actually, in the end, you become less healthy in some situations like that. You sow to sexual morality with your eyes, as I'm sure some even here do and struggle with, but it has the appearance of being beautiful and sweet. And then you, you, you realize it actually reaps an inability to appreciate beauty in nature or an inability to relate with others around you in a pure way. We realize sin reaps ruin. Just like Haman building his own gallows to be hung Sin is like injecting, when we indulge it, it's like injecting cancer into us or drinking sweet poison. You ever use that stuff, taro, for ants? You know, we use it a lot and, and the ants love it. You know, you put it on your, wherever ants are and they like swarm for everything. And like, oh, this is so good and sweet. It tastes so wonderful. I think I'll take it back to my queen and share it, you know. And then next thing you know, it's, you know, I've got a stomachache. This is not going well with me. Um, The promises of sin are sweet, no doubt. Um, Just like Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the beginning. But when you indulge, we realize it works towards our ruin. Sin, number two, will turn against us or turn against you and and actually take life. So this is verse 9 through 11. The palace Nebuchadnezzar built by violence to display his glory and the walls that he was sure would keep him so safe. Verse 11 says, These lifeless objects, the wall, 
they're so full of justice and truth, they actually come to life and they start crying out against him. The walls, the stone walls start crying out to the, the wood beams in the palace. You can almost picture it as King Nebuchadnezzar was in his palace and the walls start to whisper to him. We are built with the blood of innocent men. We're, we're stained. You will be judged. What is lifeless cries out to them in verse 10. It's, it says, you have forfeited your life. You see the irony? The very walls that make him feel so safe are turning on him. The lifeless thing he trusted in comes to life and testifies against his judgment towards his future judgment. And it's a, again, it's a universal truth. It's an ironic reversal of any kind of idolatry. Ever since the fall, it's our tendency to take a created, lifeless thing. We're created to give ourselves to the eternal, lifeful God. And yet, it is our tendency, because we lost that with God, to turn to created objects for our sense of significance and worth, to find our glory. We turn to money and jobs and success, our popularity, and we turn to fame, health, we turn to security, and we we make them little gods. We trust them for our ultimate happiness. And the ironic reversal is when we do this is these things tend to come to life and then they turn on us and they control and master us and then they suck life out of us. The more we give ourselves to it. I'm not a, at all a scholar of Lord of the Rings, but um, I've watched the movies. Does that make me close? Um, but man, does he picture that in the movies, that, that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, a, a believer, I think, got this, that this ring that was said to hold ultimate power and authority in the land, and he who controls it had, had this seeming promise of, of riches and fame and glory, and one of the first ones to get it was a little hobbit named Smeagol, and um, what, what, what seemed to promise fullness of life and infinite power seemed to um, lead him into a deeper, deeper hatred of himself and a hatred of others. He, this lifeless ring became what he kept calling my precious because it was the object of his affection and he just he followed around and it got stolen but because it came to life and it actually started controlling him and sucked the life out of him. And if you've seen the movie... It betrays this, this being that's had all the life sucked out of him. And if you've given yourself to an idol, you feel like that on the inside. So goes all, who, the life of all who give themselves to someone or something other than God. It, it seems to go well for a while, but at some point it turns on you and comes to life and takes control. And you will forfeit your life if you ultimately trust in it. Jesus said this in Luke 9, right? As an ironic reversal. If you, if you want to try to save your life here on this earth, you, you will lose it. It's a promise. If you want to try to gain the whole world, then you're going to forfeit your very soul. He's not just talking about the end. He's talking about even now. Sin will turn against you. That's number two. And take your life. And number three Simply, we see sin will be judged because all sin must be punished. All sin must be punished. And this is actually something very hopeful. 
This is a hopeful passage for millions of Christians throughout centuries that have been persecuted and killed because of violent injustice. And Habakkuk, as Habakkuk wonders, where is God in the midst of such sin and injustice? God refers to himself. In verse 13, he says, look, don't worry about this. I am the Lord of hosts. You know what he's saying there? He's, it's a title of supreme authority and power. He's like, I'm the divine warrior and king of all the host of angelic warriors. It's, it's what David told Goliath. Goliath is like, what, you a little, what are you doing out here? You're like a little boy. Come to me with sticks. And God says, or David turns to him and says, uh, you kind of just, things aren't always what they seem, Goliath. Uh, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. And just let him to have no fear. John Calvin said, verse 13, as a way of saying this, God will have his turn. God will have his turn for all injustice. And for the Babylonians, their labor will be brought to nothing just like this. It's going to be destroyed. It's a principle of truth for all time. Nobody gets away with sin and injustice. All, are, all sin is brought to light one day. And it's judged and it's punished by the Lord of hosts. A holy Lord of hosts. And so in order to live by faith, we must trust that sin, it will be judged. That's the ironic reversal. So to live by faith, though, number two, we have to believe this. God's glory. Not just sin will be judged and brought low, but the glory of God will be established. So let's look at that. Verse 14. Verse 14 seems to be the climax of God's response to Habakkuk as he pondered. God, where is your glory? Your people are rebelling. The wicked nation has taken over and they're exalting their glory and their name. When are you going to show up? And God says, listen, Habakkuk, man, things are not what they seem. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of my glory and just as the waters cover the, the floor of the sea, the sea floor. Glory is the manifestation or display of God's character and His value and worth. So He gives this picture. It's like a tsunami. It's like the sea rumbles and rise, raises up and starts coming with great power. So just wait on it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to flood the earth. There's not going to be a crack or crevice or valley that's not filled with my glory. We know tsunamis, don't we? We, we, we saw pictures and read stories about the tsunami in 2004 in Indonesia. Uh, 2011 in Japan, the type of energy, type of havoc it can, it can, it can make. Uh, a tsunami has thousands of times the amount of energy as, as the atom bomb that was dropped in Japan. And, and God, in the same way, is saying this. Listen, you don't understand just as the, sand, as the waters cover the sea, the knowledge of my glory will flood the earth with an incredible power. And everything that is, is erected, that is hostile to my glory, it's going to be just, it's just going to be, it's a promise. It's going to be destroyed and wiped out. But at the same time, everything that is built up and who, those who hope in my glory, they will be established. This is such a valuable lesson for us 
to know in terms of living by faith because it is tempted for us, for our faith as we live by faith, to kind of drift towards not hoping in the glory of God, but start to hope in what God can do for us, that God would establish our glory on the earth, that God would build up our security and our safety in the same ways others do. God would keep me safe and, and healthy and, and even maybe our hope is really that just that God would, you know, what I really want is just be forgiven of my sins and go to heaven. It's not really the glory of God. And here we see God is so zealous to put his glory as the center of his purposes and our faith. So one commentator said, he said this, in the ultimate sense, the purpose of God's plan is God's glory. This is the highest of all values and one of the most the great motivating factors in all that God has chosen and done. As the only infinite being, this is what God must do. To put something else in the primary place of God would, would in fact be a case of idolatry. So this was big in my life. When I felt like, um, I felt like the waters of me started encompassing me. Um, I started going through periods of despondency in seminary for the first time and felt like, I don't know, everything was kind of going gray. And I felt kind of joyous. I felt kind of seasons of joylessness. And I felt like I'd go to the party and be kind of the dud of the party. And just this introversion and starting to think a lot about me, me-centeredness. And what I tended to do was I started evaluating and overanalyzing my works and started looking at what, well, what must I be doing or not doing for God that, that this is causing that. And the more I did that, the more it centered on me. And then all of a sudden... Uh, one day we had a chapel service. A guy came in and preached on Second uh, Corinthians 12. And all of a sudden I saw God tell Paul, and I'd read this passage a lot, but I just, it, just, it just hit me. God telling Paul how committed he was to keep him low, to not, so that he wouldn't be conceited, so that he could exalt himself through Paul's humbled low times, through his weaknesses, through his hardships that Christ may be exalted so that the, the water of God's glory, of, of His power, of His sufficient grace is most fully put on display. And oh, how this was healing for me to get my eyes off myself and see God's zeal for His glory in my life to be manifest. And for all of us to see that life is not first about maximizing our health and wealth and security and popularity. It's about God being glorified, as Paul said in Philippians 1, through life or through death, through poverty or pain or whatever. And this is the essence of what it means to be set free. So God tells Habakkuk here, my purpose is to establish my glory on the earth as the waters cover the sea. It is my highest value. And it began then. It was just a few years later, Daniel 4 tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was exalting himself, he was in his, uh, in his great palace one day, it says in Daniel 4, he says this, Is not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? And it says, while the words were still in his mouth, God spoke. The kingdom has departed from you. And he humbled this great king to become like an ox who feeds in the, in the, in the fields, eating grass. It, it just caused him to lose it. 
and he humbled him. And then one of the greatest ironic reversals of all of history, of course, was Jesus. The crest of this great tidal wave. There's no greater ironic reversal that's ever happened. The king of glory, he's called. Hebrews 1 calls him the radiance of the glory of God. Was born in a, a tiny little manger in an insignificant little town in the first century. See the ironic reversal? The, the one who had all riches came and became poor. He became homeless. The one worthy of all praise and worship. The one who was passionate for his glory and deserved all glory. You remember in the triumphal entry? Um, Jesus actually quoted Habakkuk too. That, that, that it says a multitude of people were, were giving um, praise to God as Jesus came in. It actually says, they were saying to Jesus, glory to God in the highest, to our great king. And the, the religious people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this is just a little, this is just a little prophet. Like, what, what are you doing? Give glory to God, not Jesus or whatever. And Jesus says this, he quotes, I think from Habakkuk 2, and he says, you don't get it. If these people didn't worship me, the stones are so filled with truth that even they would cry out and worship me. I mean, Jesus knew who he was. He deserved all worship and glory and praise. And yet, he gave himself to be absolutely shamed in the most humbling of ways, right? The one who had all authority told Pilate, as Pilate said, don't you know I have all authority? And Jesus is like, you only have the authority my father gives you. you got nothing. He gives himself over. The lion becomes like a lamb to become slain, to be slain. The only one without sin, deserving no judgment, was judged and was punished. It was the ultimate ironic reversal. Satan thought he's having his way. And these evil men erecting a cross and putting Jesus up on it, thinking they're squashing this little annoying bug of a prophet. God was in perfect control. And through that act, was establishing his glory on the earth, the certainty of it. The ultimate way to put it on display, his great love for sinners like you and me, his great desire to forgive your sin so that you can arrive in heaven and your sin and my sin not be judged because it already was judged. There's his glory put on display. That's why Jesus came. What does this mean for me and you? Give two quick applications as we close. If your ultimate faith, number one, is in something other than God, to those whose faith is in something or someone other than God, this passage, you have, we have to point out that you're in trouble. That you greatly misunderstand God's holy law you greatly miscalculate the holiness of God and, and the judgment that is to come upon all sin. That things won't always be what they seem. That sin will be judged. The proud will be humbled. The wise will become foolish. That Jesus, the Lamb, will come back like a lion and He will judge all sin. And it will be terrible for those who hope 
you're hoping in your own righteousness, if that's one thing you're hoping in, not just things of this earth, but if you hope that you're good enough to arrive before God with your glorious good deeds, judgment, because you're not good enough. It's why Jesus went to the cross. Therefore, to live by faith, we hope this morning, if you're in this situation, you will believe and put your faith in what Jesus has done for you. The application to those whose faith is in the glory of God and the work of Jesus. God tells Habakkuk then and, and us now, things aren't what they seem. He says, things aren't what they seem. Do you, you feel unloved now or maybe unlovable? Things aren't what they seem because nothing can separate you from the love of God that you are now, that you now have in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You ever, you feel like Satan is just at you? He says, he looks at what you did this week and he says, guilty. And you feel if somebody knew about it that you'd feel so much shame. And you feel if you arrive before God one day that he's going to say, condemned. Things aren't what they seem because he says, no, you, no. you've been washed as white as snow. We read that in our confession of sin. You've been cleansed. You actually have the, ro- the righteous robe of Jesus. Can you picture it right now? Things aren't what they seem. You're white robed with, with the righteousness of Jesus. And when you arrive in heaven, he says, accepted. He says, right. Are you struggling with certain sin? You wonder if you ever get power over it, Christian? Hope in the glory of God. God can come in mightily. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. Thank goodness. And he can... The glory of God can feel those cracks and crevices you feel like have just been so dry. You're suffering with trials and hardships and pain. You feel like injustice, there's injustices in your life. Oh, how we can trust it over to God. A God who is who's in control and he's good and he's working things in your life, the preservation of what's most necessary. And that's your hope and faith in the glory of God and in the work of Jesus. God tells Habakkuk then and us now, live by faith. Things aren't always what they seem. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can trust you this morning. Sin will be judged And we won't always suffer like we are. We won't always feel this pain, but we will be with you in eternity, painless, rejoicing, full of joy, never any despondency left, injustice. And we thank you, Father, for the sin that we feel so prevalent in our lives that for those who trust in Christ, it is already judged. In this we hope, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.